Given you started the novel in early 2004-ish, three-ish, four-ish, how many iterations do you feel like you went through, give or take? If I showed you all the versions of this thing, you would gag. <laughs> Welcome to Story Geometry, the podcast about the craft and community of writing. I'm your host, Ben Hess, and that's Elizabeth Morrow, who has just released her debut novel, Casualties. We're talking over a thousand pages. We're talking, you know, pages actually written and tossed and kept. I mean, we're, we're in the thousands. In the thousands. Yeesh. Each episode, I choose a theme, bring you insights from award-winning writers and teachers, as well as newer scribes. Here we are, episode 10, hitting double digits with What's Your Scaffolding? Yes, we're exploring structure in this episode with a nod toward longer form fiction and creative nonfiction. You'll hear much more from Elizabeth, who goes by Betsy, on her 12-year journey as casualties went from idea through many, many, many drafts and ultimately to publication. Her final page count is 358, by the way, well down from her 1,000 plus. We've got key insights on structure from the Sue Kaufman Prize winner for first fiction, Josh Weil. Josh is the author of the short story collection, New Valley, and the novel, The Great Glass Sea. And we'll hear about a different approach from award-winning writer and teacher, Pam Houston. How do you get from this initial thing into a story? Here's Josh Weil. When I'm saying, okay, here's this theme I want to deal with. Here's this guy I, I want to figure out. Here's this event that is going to set something in motion. What's going to be the, the way that this story unfolds then? After Josh tackles these questions, there'll be a discussion about literature and politics and the intersection of the two. I kicked off this election year lit segment in episode 9, reading an excerpt of Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, which topped the bestseller list in 1940. All of this is brought to you by my literary partner in crime, the nonprofit workshop series Writing by Writers, and our sponsor, Talking Book, the independent audiobook publisher. So stay with us. What craft means, what it really means to me is, is tools. Again, here's Josh Weil. He spoke at Writing by Writers Manuscript Bootcamp in glorious Tamales Bay, 90 minutes north of San Francisco being able to use tools in order to transfer that kind of inspirational feeling that you might get or the thing that, that leads you into a story. And the great kind of trick and frustrating thing and, and thing that I'm always trying to do is figure out how I get what I feel onto a page in a way that it can transfer that feeling into a reader. For me, craft is really about tools that, that help us get there. And one of the most important tools for me is an outline. So I thought that I'd actually talk about outline. I want to do that for a couple reasons. One, I suspect it'll piss Pam off. Um, <laughs> As you probably know, Writing by Writer's co-founder, Pam Houston, is not a fan of outlines. Her view of story just doesn't support that approach. Here she is from episode one. For me, stories are really physical things. You know, they have a, a shape. They have a, a depth. They are really 3D in my mind when I'm writing them. I think of geometric figures in relation to the story to help me understand the story's structure. Sometimes the structures are more complicated and sometimes it's quite simple. Like I, I think about stories as like two intersecting triangles or a rhombus or a parallelogram. And yes, this approach led us to the podcast name Story Geometry. But on the other hand, 
Here's more from Josh. If I know the bones of a story, if I have a scaffolding there, then it gives me the freedom not to worry about the purpose of what I'm doing on the page in the moment, and instead, just to let the characters do shit. As I floundered off and on with my novel, this makes sense to me. It has a logic to it. But then, here's more from Pam. I don't ever think about plot. I don't even really ever think about characters until many revisions down the road. You know, I'm thinking about form. I'm thinking about what is the shape of the story. If this story were a sculpture, what would it look like? What would its geometry be? With these two divergent approaches toward the process, here's more from Betsy Morrow. We chatted in a gorgeous park near the Pacific Coast Highway just south of Los Angeles. I was interviewed on the radio last week. She said, do you bang out a draft? Do you just barrel through it and then go back and fix it? I said, no, there's been no barreling. <laughs> no barreling for me. To that point, would you, for, for the next ones that you're working on, either the short story collection or a novel, would you outline or would you? I've started to. Yeah. I'm trying to. Yeah. And actually, outline isn't really what I'm going for. What I'm trying to go for is say, what is this story about for me? Know enough about it going in and then see, to outline it, Yes and no, but I think once I have my people, to me, I have to say, when in doubt, I go to the characters. At the end of the day, I'm a character-driven person. I People and their weirdnesses and what makes them tick, that's the thing that makes me excited about writing. That and place. <laughs> so we've got varying approaches to consider from Josh, Pam, and Betsy, all yielding complex, powerful character-driven stories. Josh wrote four novel-length things, his description, not mine, before getting his MFA. None of these four were published, but he continued to hone his approach to the craft using organic outlines, again, his term, not mine, and started winning short fiction contests and getting published. Betsy, on the other hand, doesn't have an MFA. In fact, she told me writing casualties was, in essence, her MFA. And she writes organically, letting in-depth character research dictate their actions and subsequent plot. In fact, Josh spoke about both of these paths when we sat down for an interview after his talk. Some writers will go through that entire growth process on one novel, mm -hmm. and they're going to spend 10 years mm -hmm. working on that novel and revising it and reimagining it, and that's just the book they have to write, and that's a fine approach too. On the other hand, you know, I have a novella that I wrote that's 150 pages, some people would think about it as being a short novel. I wrote it in three weeks and then didn't change it that much afterwards. You know, So it really depends on the project and where you are as a writer. Before exploring story scaffolding further, and since we'll be talking about it in more detail, I want to give you a taste of Betsy's novel. She's going to read a short excerpt and has graciously provided the text as well, which I have placed inside this episode's transcript. So you can read along as you wish, and of course, click that link to purchase Casualties too all on storygeometry.org. Here's Betsy. I'll set it up a little bit. I'm going to read from the first chapter, and it's where Ruth, my lead character, who is a single mother and a defense executive with big plans for her 19-year-old son who's been in the house a little too long, is meeting him the day after his birthday. He is late. He was supposed to have been there the night before, but he spent the weekend in the desert, and he's you know, just rolling in as she's ready to uh, roll out to work and she's a little impatient. Great, whenever you're ready. Ruth thinks of the garage where he works part-time, fixing dirt bikes, motorcycles, and those tricycles his friends race in the desert. Then she sees her brother back in New Hampshire, head always stuck under the hood of a truck or a car, or half buried in the engine of someone's farm machine. 
He'd given up on himself without even trying. She wasn't going to let that happen to Robbie. I'm talking about a career. It's not too late. You can find something that... I'm starved. What's in the fridge? Robbie grabs the door of the refrigerator. Don't turn your back on me. We're going to get this settled. Now. He swings around to face her. I was going to save my news for later, but I might as well tell you now. Ruth doesn't want to hear. She's heard it all before. You need a real job with a real future. Then she realizes they've both heard this before, too. She pauses, searching for words that are new, that will penetrate. That's what my news is all about, Ruthie. Ruth feels her jaw cramp with the effort of biting back a sarcastic what now. Maybe he's gotten that girl, his boss's daughter, pregnant. He's going to spend the rest of his life getting tattoos and living for weekends in the blazing sun with beer, engines, and a couple of kids. He's going to let his mind, that alive, curious mind she'd once been so proud of, go to waste. Is he trying to spite her by hurting himself? Her train of thought is rumbling so loud and so fast, she doesn't realize at first that Robbie is still speaking. What did you say, she said. Robbie's chin still juts out as though he's expecting trouble. But he's searching her face the way he used to when he was a boy, and he wanted to see if he'd pleased her. He starts over, speaking slowly, deliberately, as if each word is loaded with explosives and must be uttered with care. I said I decided to work for Uncle Sam. Kind of like you, only I joined the Marines. Signed on the dotted line last Friday. A couple of months, and I'm out of here. Ruth feels a sudden slipping inside, even though she can't move. That's impossible. Robbie's eyes harden, and he smirks again. They want me, a few good men. Guess I'm good enough for once. Besides, there's a war on, but you know all that, right? He rubs the tips of his thumb and forefinger together and imitates the sound of a cash register. Cha-ching! Ruth grips the edge of the chair in front of her. She wants him to take it all back, the announcement he made so proudly and now his insulting tone that makes her job sound dirty. The military couldn't run their wars without the civilians she found for them. She helped men and women make money they needed, more than they ever could make doing the same jobs at home. But they were adults, not 19-year-old kids. No, she said. Robbie shrugs, but his eyes stay focused on hers. Not your call. For once, I'm doing what I want to do. I think I'm going to stop there. Fantastic. So many questions for you. But stand by. We'll get to those questions soon, along with more from Josh Weil and our presidential election year lit selection after a brief word from our sponsor, Talking Book. Are you a writer? Do you want your book to morph into strange and beautiful new creatures while you sleep? Talking Book is the independent audiobook publisher, and they are making moves right this second, like publishing the audiobooks Bad Sex by Clancy Martin and Jigsaw Youth by Tiffany Scandal. Go to talkingbook.pub and make something awesome with them today. Act now, and I just might come to your house dressed as the ghost of Flannery O'Connor and read you a story. Talking Book. The Muscle Shoals of Audiobook Publishing. You're listening to Story Geometry, Episode 10. Today's theme, What's Your Scaffolding? With all the writers and teachers I've had the opportunity to meet and talk to, I'm always curious why they write. And why do we choose fiction, nonfiction, poetry, or memoir, or screenwriting? Or is it even a choice? Again, here's Betsy Morrow. I mean, I've been a writer since my early, early days. And then, of course, I was a journalism major and English major in, in college. And... And then anything I did in business required a huge amount of 
writing. But the writing of the novel, that, that I had different to learn. Beast. It's a different beast. I mean, I had read, I understood fiction from a re- every other standpoint, from a literature major's perspective, from a reading perspective. But to actually sit down and write it is another whole experience. The more I wrote, the more I realized I didn't know how to write. I mean, I, or I didn't trust that I knew mm-hmm. how to write. I knew I was learning it. I knew I was coming. I knew I could write. But I didn't. There was just so much more to know. And Betsy wrote and wrote and wrote Ruth's story and Robbie's story without a clear picture of where she was going, without the novel's foundation or its trellis or scaffolding. And there were a bunch of iterations between 2004 and 2006 or seven or something, then a big change, then a bunch of throwing out. And in 2009, I had what I thought was was still a pretty big book. <laughs> and I threw out 600 pages. And uh, I ended up with about 150 of disconnected scenes. And this is very interesting. From a structural standpoint, I sort of violated some rules with the structure of right. my book, I think. Yes. I mean, I don't bring in a major character till so halfway I'll, through the so book. Page 145. I know, I know. Given the 600 pages that you've cut and, and all the evolutions you've gone through, when did you hit on the structure that you ended up with? Well, that's interesting because Casey, who is the character that comes in halfway through the book, used to appear a lot closer to the front. I used to have three or four chapters, then Casey. And then I was going to go back and forth throughout and largely had handled Robbie through flashbacks. Uh-huh. But there was a remoteness to Robbie that way that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. And you know, I'm going to credit my father. What he did say to me, and we were driving up to see his sister in Vermont, and I said, I didn't think he'd finished the last draft that I'd given him. His wife said, oh no, he finished it. And I said, oh yeah? And he says, yeah. And he was real quiet for a minute. He said, you know, he said, it just seemed weird not to meet Robbie. I wanted to see him and understand him. He's the reason a lot of this story happens, and it's, I didn't feel like I got a sense of him just through the way you've done it. So I just, as an experiment, wrote the Robbie chapters that are now in the beginning of the book. Really, the book was going to be, when, when I did the major revision in 2009, lost the 600 pages, it was going to be an entirely a journey story. You know, The road trip was going to be the spine of the story. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it turned out not to be the spine, but the lower lower half yeah. of the back, you know? Yeah. And so I would say I, I like structure. I, I like playing by the rules, so I think they help you. Yeah. <laughs> so I was very, I'm very happy with this next one to try to do that a little bit more. We'll hopefully see how that goes, you know? Indeed. I'm confident Betsy will launch her next book in, say, 2020. So cutting her cycle by two-thirds. Meanwhile, Josh Weil came to fiction both as an avid reader and also as a filmmaker. Part of this is I come to writing actually through a kind of a a roundabout route as a director. My undergraduate training was in film school and I studied directing theater a lot. When the writing is really singing for me, when it's going really well, it feels like I'm a director directing actors and the characters. I've kind of set out the kind of corral of what is acceptable for the scene, what the, you know, how the scene is going to work, what it needs to accomplish, and then I just let them go to it. As a filmmaker and media producer, I love this reference to our characters as actors on stage or on set. Even Stephen King, I was looking up writers who might support my idea, and I thought, surely Stephen King would support the outline. It turns out he doesn't. <laughs> he believes that the plotting and spontaneity of real creation aren't compatible with an outline, and, and that stories make themselves, and that the writer's job is to give them a place to grow. I actually agree with that. I just think that the place to grow is, for me, is the trellis of this outline. Same thing with Ishiguro. Josh is referring to Kazuo Ishiguro, four-time Man Booker Prize nominee and winner for Remains of the Day. He says he spends two years researching before writing. He compiles notes and flowcharts that lay out uh, the plot and the character's emotions, the memories, 
He says, the preparation gives me the opportunity to have my narrators suppress meaning and evade meaning when they say one thing and they mean something else. And, and that can be very important to know kind of what is at heart, what is coming in the story, what the characters, what's at deepest concern to the characters so they cannot talk about it. Margaret Atwood. Just confirming, Atwood wrote The Edible Woman, The Handmaid's Tale, and the recent dystopian Mad Adam trilogy. She prints out chapters, she arranges them in piles on the floor, she plays with the order by moving the piles around. For me, I kind of see that all as outlining. It's just different ways of going about it. I spend, you know, a year or more writing ideas out in a notebook. And then before I start actually writing the piece, I collect all of those ideas for scenes, the, thing, the scenes that are most exciting to me, the, the, the conflicts that seem most important to the work, and I write them out in paragraphs. And it's these paragraphs of scenes that form Josh's scaffolding. And as he actually writes, one of these foundational paragraphs could bloom into 10 or 20 pages. He's constantly making notes on the outline, revising direction, moving things around. So it's alive, it's organic. Part of why I feel so strongly about this, and again, I, you know, I have to stress is the way that I, I write. I'm not for a minute saying everybody should do this. But I value a first draft tremendously, which is a dangerous thing to do because it puts a lot of pressure on a first draft. And sometimes that stymies me. It means that it takes me a month to figure out how to get going because I don't want to get going in a way that's on the wrong path. But I do feel that for me at least, there's a certain freshness and, and honesty and newness and truth that comes out of a first draft that is not, my editor hat is not yet on. And and I don't want to lose that. So that's part of why I feel so feel such a need to get to outline is so that I can lose as little as possible in that first draft. In honor of the election 2016 circus we're in and in the spirit of unconventional structure, I'm going to close today's episode with a contemporary work for our presidential election year lit series. With the immigration one of the key themes this election cycle, I'm featuring a literary immigrant, Dominican-American Juno Diaz, whose novel, the brief, wondrous life of Oscar Wilde won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize. In an interview with British publisher Faber and Faber, Diaz says, and I'm quoting here, and Oscar Wilde, for all its historical stuff, all its nerd stuff, the entire book is about a family trying to find love, which I found surprising, moving, and bold. This from an immigrant who, quote, faced a tremendous amount of racism and bigotry, not just from white Americans, but from black Americans and Latinos. For those interested in hearing Diaz, there are several clips of him reading from Oscar Wilde on YouTube. Don't you just wonder what literature will spawn from this bizarre election cycle of 2016? What recommendations do you have for a future installment of Election Year Lit? Hit me up on social media or hello at storygeometry.org. Special thanks to Elizabeth Betsy Morrow, Josh Weil, and Pam Houston for their thoughts on structure. I'm your host and editor at Ben Hess on Twitter and Instagram, and we're Story Geometry on Facebook and Twitter. Mark those calendars for future episodes arriving like a foil-wrapped Easter egg the last Monday of each month throughout 2016. Don't forget to visit today's sponsor, TalkingBook.pub, to create your very own audiobook. Our theme music is from Mark Hodgkin, and additional tracks are from writer Greg Glazner's band, The Responders. Please rate and review Story Geometry and iTunes. Send feedback via storygeometry.org 
and sign up for future Writing by Writers events and conferences at writingxwriters.org. And in closing, for those of us a little farther along this roller coaster of life, Betsy Morrow. I'm not as unique as I thought in that category. There are people out there writing all the time at all ages and doing things, amazing things. Usually 50, <laughs> not closer to 60. Right. Closer you get up there, you know, the harder it is. And really what makes it harder is the stories you tell yourself. You know, yeah, the competition's always there. Just look around and see all the writers that are out there. Yeah. You know, age at that point hasn't got a whole lot to do with it. More literary words of wisdom next time. Thanks for listening.